Our Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself and your will to us in your word. And we ask now, Lord, that you would give us the intelligence and the wisdom and the strength to understand the things that we are reading in your word today and help us to know what to do with these things and give us the strength and the courage to do them. We pray this now, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So all this summer, and in fact, even we started this before we left Wendler way back in the spring, we've been uh, speaking on the book of Ephesians, um, which has been a really great time. Pastor Mike and I have really enjoyed studying that book and teaching about it. And I hope that uh, you have learned some things and found some good lessons about God and about us and, uh, and about uh, some good spiritual lessons and practical challenges throughout the book of Ephesians. But the end of that series is now drawing near. Just a couple more weeks, and then we have our eighth anniversary service, which is coming up uh, three weeks from today. And uh, then after that, we're going to start a brand new uh, series on the book of Joshua. And that's going to be a really cool book as well. Um, in Ephesians, you have a lot of direct teaching of this is what God wants you to do. In Joshua, you have lots of stories in which it uh, illustrates for us thing, true things about God and about us and about our relationship with God. And there's going to be famous stories of miracles like the Battle of Jericho and Rahab and the spies and the day the sun stood still. And there's going to be lots of lessons about what God expects from his people and how he relates to them and about sin and judgment and righteousness and reward. It's going to be great. So looking forward to the book of Joshua. But that's still a couple weeks away. Today we are in Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we took the title for our series in Ephesians uh, from a key theme of the book. We called it A People Full of God. And here in Ephesians 5, uh, we have that idea of being full of God um, expressed in, in, in verse 18. And, and this is one of the key ideas that you have to keep in mind throughout this whole thing that we're going to talk about today, is that as we, as we think about this passage, we have to think about it in light of the fact that we are a people full of God. But the way that it's, it's worded a little differently in verse 18, it's, it says this, it says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that, uh, that, that, so instead of drunkenness, which leads to sin, we're told to be filled with the Spirit, which is another way to say, be a people full of God. Be filled with the Spirit, be full of God. And that instruction, to be filled with the Spirit, is the foundation for everything else we're going to look at today. So it's important that we know a little bit about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, right? Because that's a term that we hear in the Bible, but sometimes we don't really understand what that means to be full of the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. So the first thing we need to um, clarify is that the Bible is really clear that all Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they first surrender their lives to Christ and receive forgiveness and salvation, so it says that in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So all Christians already have the spirit in them. 
right? So when it says be filled with the Spirit, it's talking to people that already have the Spirit, right? So what does the Bible mean when it instructs Christians to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it's really not that uncommon for us to say a, a phrase uh, like uh, to say somebody is full of a particular emotion or a particular trait. Um, for instance, we might say that someone is filled with anger, or we could say that someone is filled with wisdom, or maybe a newlywed couple is just filled with love for one another, right? And so what do we mean when we say that? What do we mean? Well, if somebody is filled with, say, grief, it means that grief is dominating their life, their thoughts, their decisions, their actions are all being influenced by their grief or by anger or by love or by sympathy. The person who is filled with love is characterized by love. And you could even say that the, the, the thing that they are full of is controlling their life, right? Someone who is full of a desire for revenge is being controlled by that desire for revenge. But of course, you know, it's, it's not a binary thing where it's, it's either on or off. Uh, someone can experience being filled with something to a greater or lesser extent, right? Uh, the amount that an angry person is controlled by their anger is really variable, right? Um, but, but to say that someone is filled with anger that's a much stronger way of putting it and implies a much greater influence on their lives than just to say somebody's angry, right? Um, if you're filled with anger or one of these other things, then, then you're really angry, right? And, and that, I think, is, 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 is a pretty similar idea to what the Bible is talking about when it says, be filled with the Spirit. Right? It means that the Spirit should be dominating our thoughts, our decisions, our actions, to the extent that people can say, that girl is filled with the Spirit. Our lives should be characterized by the Spirit, and the Spirit should be the greatest influence shaping our lives. Now, of course, being filled with the Spirit is, is more complex than just being filled with something like sympathy or grief or something, because the Spirit is, uh, is a complex person, right? And, and also, it's not as obvious to us how being filled with the Spirit will show itself in our lives. What, what will it look like when someone is filled with the Spirit? If we say someone is filled with fear, we, we, we got a pretty good idea what that means, but filled with the Spirit, what exactly is going on? So, so one of the places we can go where we can get a pretty good broad picture of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, is that famous passage from Galatians chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are the kind of traits that someone who is filled with the Spirit will uh, live out. They will live out the, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, so go read that chapter in uh, Galatians chapter 5, and you can get a pretty good idea of the kinds of things that the Spirit will bring out in our lives or if you have a little bit more time, uh, maybe on your commute or, uh, or whatever, whenever you have a little time, um, you can go back on the Clearwater app and you can find a whole sermon series that Pastor Mike and I did on the fruit of the Spirit 
from a couple of years ago. You can find that on the Clearwater Church app or on our website. You can find those old sermons. Even if you were here when we did that, go back and listen to them. You probably forgot after a couple of years. Um, so I encourage you, listen to that stuff on the fruit of the Spirit and think about that as what we are, what we should expect when we are filled with the Spirit. Now this morning, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about a, a complete picture of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Instead, we're just going to look at the, our passage here in Ephesians, which is going to show us a few things that people who are filled with the Spirit will do. And uh, so we're going to learn uh, a few things about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And these are things that, um, at, least, at least some of these things, are things that you can really only do when you're filled with the Spirit. So, um, so here's, uh, starting in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 5, it describes some of the things that uh, people who are filled with the Spirit will do. It says, uh, well, back to verse 18, it says, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three instructions in those, in those verses. Speak to one another with hymns, or psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord and give thanks to God the Father for everything. So the first things that a person who is filled with the Spirit are going to, is going to do is they're going to worship God through music and, and also um, to give thanks to God. So, so far, that doesn't sound too uh, difficult to do, right? I mean, singing songs of worship to God is a big deal. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of an amazing thing that we do. But once we have decided that God is worthy of our worship, it's not that difficult to actually do it. Um, we can sing songs, and, th and that's not so hard. And giving thanks all the time, consistently living in an attitude of thanks to God, that's a bit more difficult than singing songs, but it's still, uh, we can remember to be thankful to God, we can pray and thank God for our food every, at our meals and do things, and we can live in, in an attitude of thankfulness. But in the next verse, we have an instruction about what it's like to be filled with the Spirit that is much more difficult to actually do. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, submit is not a word that we like. Uh, to submit to someone is the opposite of standing up for yourself. It is giving in to someone else's will. To submit is to lose. And in, in the sport of mixed martial arts, uh, one of the ways to beat your opponent is to force them to submit. So you get them into uh, what they call a submission hold, which usually is either uh, you're choking off uh, their breath so that they can't breathe, or it's some kind of hold where their arms or legs are going in a direction they're not supposed to go, and it's really painful, and you force your opponent to submit to you. And when you submit you lose. You give up, and to submit is, is, is a humiliating defeat. But the Bible says 
that we should submit to one another. So does that mean that the Bible is telling us to be losers? No, no. Uh, would you be surprised if I told you that the, the meaning of submission in the Bible is a little different than what it is in, in MMA fighting? Uh, submission in the Bible, it, it, it does have some similarities to those kind of unsavory ideas of submission that most of us think about, but, but it's different. And one of the big obvious differences is that the submission that the Bible is talking about here is voluntary and not forced. The Bible does not instruct us to force someone to submit to us. It is instructing us to voluntarily submit to each other. And the biblical idea of Christians submitting to each other is really a, a, a pretty common uh, instruction in the New Testament. It, it's described in different wordings, in different uh, phrases, but it's the same basic idea in several different parts of the Bible. Um, one of the places it talks about that is in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5, where it says this. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And to serve one another humbly in love is a very similar idea to submitting to one another. Another place where the Bible describes this is in the book of Philippians where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And, and this verse, I think, really explains pretty well the biblical idea of submission. Biblical submission is not the opposite of winning. Biblical submission is the opposite of selfishness. And it's motivated not by weakness, but by humility. Biblical humility is, is that idea of valuing others above yourself. That doesn't mean that you think everybody else is better than you are. It means that you consider what is good for others to be of greater value than what is good for yourself. And that is radical thinking. It's not simply that we should think about others as well as thinking about ourselves. Right? That would be one thing if the Bible just said, don't be selfish and think only about yourself. You should also consider other people as well. There are people in the world who, who only think of themselves and don't consider how their actions affect other people. They have no sympathy for anyone else, and they don't care what happens to other people. And those people are mentally ill. We call that psychopathy, and those people are psychopaths. And it would be easy for the Bible to just say, you know, anybody can say, look, everybody, don't be a psychopath. Uh, think of others. Consider them also. Don't, don't, be, don't be crazy. But what the Bible is saying here goes way beyond that, right? What the Bible is saying 
is that we should think of others' interests above our own. It's not just think about how your decisions will affect others. It's think about how your decisions will affect others, and that should be more important to you than pleasing yourself. And again, that, that is radical thinking. That is a radical idea. But it's pretty clear that that is what the Bible is telling us to do. That's what that verse in Philippians says, and that's what Ephesians says when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit your interests to the interests of others. And you know, this is also different from that, that great democratic ideal of equality, right? Equality says your needs are just as important as my needs, right? We are equal. We're on a level thing here, and I need to consider you to be, your interests to be of equal value to my own. But that's not what the Bible is saying here. This goes beyond equality. This is seeing others' interests not as equal but as having greater value than your own interests. And in the next verse here, the Bible applies this concept to marriage. All that the Bible has been saying about submission applies to marriage just as much as it does to any other relationship. In fact, as we're about to see, the Bible is very clear that all of this applies to marriage even more than it does to other relationships. The marriage relationship is the ultimate place that submitting to one another is to be done. And we just saw that in our relationships, we're not to consider uh, one another's uh, good as equal to our own good. And that goes for marriage, too. The Bible does not say husbands and wives should equally consider each other's good. It says that you should consider your spouse above yourself. And in Galatians, when we looked at that verse, uh, the, the way it described it was that you should be a servant to your spouse. You should submit to your spouse. But because Christians are called to serve one another, and to submit to one another. But the next verse takes that general instruction to all Christians and brings it right down very specifically into marriage. And the rest of the chapter uh, is about how all the things that we've talked about so far relate to marriage. So here's, here's the next verses here, starting in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I realize that this verse, in particular, stirs up some very strong responses from some people, right? Uh, in fact, uh, I already got an email this week about this uh, verse and this passage. Even before I preached about it, somebody knew that it was coming up and sent me an email, somebody from church here, uh, to talk about the, the implications of this. Um, but, but I hope that we can uh, dial back our emotional reactions a little bit 
uh, and, and take a good look at this um, from a, a little more of a, um, a, a clear uh, view of the scripture and see what is really being taught here and that all of us can then come to a bit of a better understanding of what the Bible is telling us about marriage and about relationships. So, um, so maybe one of the most obvious things that we need to, to see here is the connection between this verse where it says wives must submit to, have, uh, to husbands and the one that came before it. Because you can't understand verse 22 without seeing its connection to verse 21. So it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Um, in some of our English translations, it's, it's hard to see the connection between those two verses because they put a heading in between there. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's very much connected in, in the language of it and in the ideas that are there. The instructions to wives to submit to their husbands is basically the same instruction that has been given to all Christians to submit to all other Christians. However, that being said, this is not just a simple repetition of the last verse, right? Um, that verse 22 applies that general instruction for Christians to submit to one another in our relationships with other Christians, especially to marriage, and it is applied especially to the wives. And the instructions for husbands and wives here are different. The language is different, and the, the instructions are a, a, a bit different. And the way that mutual submission works itself out in a marriage is different for the man and for the woman. The man's role in the marriage is different than the woman's role in the marriage. God has given them different roles to play in that marriage relationship. So what the Bible is saying here is that we should all submit to one another, but also that this applies in a unique way to wives' responsibility to submit to their husbands. So, what does it mean then for, for wives to submit to their husbands? Well, it means all those things that we've just been talking about when we've been talking about submission. It means that the wife should serve her husband. It means that she should consider his needs and interests above her own needs and interests. When we talked about that in terms of, of all our relationships, said that this is radical thinking. Well, it's just as radical or more when we think about it in terms of marriage. In fact, it's really more radical in marriage because here's the thing. The, the husbands and wives have such a strong connection to one another, right? It's, it's not that hard to submit to someone that you hardly ever have contact with, right? Every now and then you see this person and you're, you can submit to them and let them have, you know, and do things for them. Um, and, it's, and it's not that difficult to do. But what about somebody that you spend every day with? What about somebody you spend so much of your life joined together? It's just such a bigger deal to actually submit in a situation like that. To submit to your spouse is really going to have a big effect and put big demands on your life. And the Bible says here that wives are to submit to their husbands in what area? In everything. 
That's pretty broad. That would include all kinds of things in the marriage. And the reason that the Bible gives is that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, exactly what it means for the husband to be the head of the wife, um, that's, that's uh, one of the parts of this section that sparks a lot of debates on to what exactly head means, and they do all these studies of the Greek uh, terminologies from this verse and all the grammar and, and all the stuff. But, um, but one, one reason there's so much debate about this is that many Christians find it very difficult to reconcile that idea that the man is the head of his wife with their more modern ideas about relationships and the equality of men and women. And of course, also on the other side there are uh, of the debate, there's the Christians who use this verse to justify a patriarchal view of marriage. And, uh, and I'm not even going to try to settle all the issues around this verse today, but I think that if we take a good look at this passage as a whole, those of us on both sides of that of that debate are going to uh, come down somewhere, you know, closer to the middle and, and, and get a better idea of what the scripture really is teaching here. And it says here that the husband's role as head is, is compared to uh, the role that Jesus has as the head of the church. Now, obviously, the husband isn't the head of the marriage in exactly the same way that Jesus is the head of the church. But there is a similarity. And in a few verses further on, that similarity is explained in more detail. And we'll get to that in just a minute about how the husband headship is similar to Jesus' headship. But, but first, um, I want to talk about the biblical idea of leadership. Because I think it's pretty clear that head somehow implies that the husband has a leadership role in the marriage. And so uh, Jesus taught his disciples once about how leadership should be conducted as Christians. It was in the book of Matthew, uh, starting in verse 20, uh, chapter 20 and starting in verse 25. So Matthew chapter 20, 25. Jesus calls them together, that is his 12 disciples, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Well, that right there sounds like what some guys think uh, it means for them to be the head of their wife in the marriage. Um, they're going to uh, rule over them and lord it over them and exercise authority over them, and they think that's what it means for me to be the head especially those traditional patriarchal marriages, husbands behave sometimes like the rulers of the Gentiles. They quote this verse to their wives. They say, wives must submit to their husbands. And they lord it over them, exercising authority over their wives. But Jesus goes on in the next two verses there in Matthew chapter 20 to say this. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, that is, whoever's going to be the leader, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 
So what does it mean, according to Jesus, to be the leader? The leader is the one who is the servant, who is the slave of those that they are leading. That is Christian leadership. And that is what it means for a husband to be the head of the wife. It means that he is her servant. It means that if you want to be a great husband and exercise your role as leader over your wife, you become her slave. And Jesus finished off this description of what it means to be a Christian leader with this. He said, just as the Son of Man, that is himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is our example of living to serve others. If ever there was anyone who deserved to be served, to have other people serve him, it would be Jesus. But he says no. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. Even to give his life for others. And if there's any question about whether that is really what uh, God has in mind here for husbands to lead their wives, uh, the next verse here in Ephesians clears that up because in verse 25 it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives, right? Not with some kind of sentimental, mushy feelings kind of love, although many wives also appreciate sentimental, mushy feelings, so that might be good too. But, but that's not the main idea here. The, the kind of love that we are told to have as husbands is the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. And what kind of love does Jesus have for the church? Well, the Bible talks about that quite a lot. And here's what it says. It says, the people of the church were in rebellion against Jesus. We were living selfishly, hurting others and hurting ourselves. We were living as sinners far from God. So what did Jesus do? In order to save us, he left his rightful place in heaven and came down to live as one of us. He loved us so much that he came to serve us. And how did he serve us? By giving his life for us on the cross, dying to save us from the consequences of our willful rebellion against him. The Bible calls that the gospel, which means the good news. And Timothy Keller uh, summarizes the gospel like this. He says, you're so lost and flawed that Jesus had to die for you. But you were also so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for you. And that is our example of service and love and leadership. Here's another one of the descriptions of Jesus' love that we find in the Bible in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that is self-sacrificing love. That is Jesus considering others above himself. That is not looking out for his own interests, it's looking out for the interests of others. And that is the kind of love that Jesus has for the church, and it's the kind of love that we are told we are to have for, uh, for husbands are to have for their wives. And the husband's uh, responsibility is explained a little more here in, in Ephesians, uh, looking at verse 28, it says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Now, some of us might not be totally in love with our bodies. Uh, maybe we're not quite as athletic as we want to be, or we uh, have, uh, but, but, but we do take care of our bodies, right? I mean, a person who, who, who doesn't take care of their body at all doesn't bathe, doesn't put clothes on, doesn't eat, doesn't sleep. That person has problems. Um, the Bible is saying that just as we take care of our bodies, husbands need to take care of our wives. And in what ways are we supposed to take care of, uh, of them? It says we are supposed to meet their needs. Um, but there's an important point I want to make here before we move on about that idea of husbands meeting their wives' needs. And that is, um, people really need God. Right? Uh, he is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. Your spouse can't. And if you are seeking to have your deepest needs met by your spouse that is always going to end in frustration. But at the same time, God did create us male and female and gave us marriage as the ultimate human relationship. And although God is the only one who can meet some of your biggest needs, your relationship with your spouse is the most important human relationship where many of our needs are to be met. So what kind of needs are we as husbands called to meet for our wives? Well, um, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Uh, this is, uh, whether you read it with all the details of what should be on what level or not, uh, it's a pretty useful way of looking at um, human uh, needs and human nature and the human life. And the way it works is that um, we all have some basic needs that need to be met in order for us to live. So we need air, food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep, these are foundational needs. We have to have those things. If we don't have those, it doesn't matter what you got up above there. You got to have those things uh, in order, first in order to build on the higher things. But, but those are only the most basic low-level needs. On the higher levels, we find things like our need for belonging, our need for friendship and acceptance, and, and, and other things of that sort. And there are some guys, some husbands, who think, that if they provide a roof over her head, they provide plenty of eat, 
plenty to eat. They provide clothes for her to wear. They are fulfilling their role as a husband. But all of those things are on the very most basic level of needs. So then some guys said, whoa, oh, well, I don't just provide basic needs. I provide a really nice house with really nice furniture. And, and we eat really good food. And there's a walk-in closet full of designer clothes. And, and, but those are all still the very most basic foundational needs. And your wife needs more than that. She needs the things that you cannot buy for her. Your wife needs you to give her your full attention, to respect her, to praise her accomplishments and, and, and show her real affection. We do need to help uh, meet basic needs, but we also need to think way beyond that. And that is love. And, and, and the, the kind of love we're supposed to have is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. What if I asked all the wives here to make a list of the things that their husbands have sacrificed for them? Things that they have given up for their wife. How long would the list be? She shouldn't have to, like, look through old photo albums and try to refresh her, you know, try to think of, uh, in order to figure out the last time you did something like that for her. See, we need to do better than the husband in this story I heard. There was, there was this young couple who, who went on their honeymoon to the Bahamas. Honeymoon in the Bahamas, great thing, you know, and they got to go snorkeling, which is one of my favorite things to do when I'm at a place where snorkeling, uh, where they have those things. They're, they're out there, they're enjoying the tropical fish, they're, and he's enjoying seeing her in a bathing suit, and it's a very romantic thing. And then they heard someone on the boat yelling, shark, shark, and the guy just took off. He swam so fast, left his bride behind, climbed out on the boat, and, uh, and the wife gets there a minute later, and she climbs in, she's safe, and she says, hey, what, why did you leave me back there? I thought you said you would face death for me. And he said, yeah, I said that, honey, but that shark wasn't dead. <laughs> so <laughs> sacrificial love. Sacrificial love, that is our calling as husbands. We need to think of her needs and her interests above our own. So did you notice that when you really boil it down, the instructions for the husband are actually pretty similar to the instructions for the wife? Despite the fact that the husband is called to lead and the wife is called to submit, the working out of those roles is that both are called to sacrifice self for the good of the other. And that is a radical view of marriage. In this biblical view, the reason you get married is to benefit the other person, not for your own needs. To live not for yourself, but for the other is the hardest yet single most important factor in, uh, in functioning as a godly husband or wife. And it is hard to live for someone else and not for yourself. And I realize we talked a lot about marriage today and not all of us are married. 
Uh, but remember that the first big section of this passage tells us that all Christians are to submit to one another. So, so the reason for the focus on marriage in, in, the, in the passage here and in, in our talk this morning is because marriage is the ultimate place where this gets applied. But the principle of submission is really to be applied to all Christian relationships. And, and here's the other thing. It seems like sacrificing ourselves and putting other people's good ahead of ours would lead to a pretty unhappy life since we're not focused on pleasing ourselves. But here is the paradox. Self-sacrifice is actually what can make you truly happy. especially in a relationship with a spouse who has the same kind of an attitude. And when we give of ourselves, seeking the good of the one we love, we will find that it makes us happier than living selfishly. And here's the other thing. We are not in this on our own. Remember, we, we started out talking about being filled with the Spirit. And all this stuff about marriage and submitting to one another and serving one another and sacrificial love and putting your spouse ahead of yourself is not easy for us as sinful people. In fact, I would say we, we can't do it. But God wants to help us. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to be the dominant influence in our lives, he will help us in our relationships. He will help us to do a better job at being a biblical husband or wife. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, we won't be able to continually sacrifice for others. But with his help, we can grow into the person that he wants us to be. Let's pray.